Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Evan. If you're new, welcome. My wife, Sandy, and I, we have the joy and the privilege of leading this church alongside a, a team of gifted leaders. We feel like family. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, how's everyone doing? Like, how's your, your soul, like your actual soul doing? Yeah. Yeah. So just know that you're invited right now, invited to be still and to rest in God's presence. Whatever you have going on this week or next week, uh, we want to be filled with the Spirit to meet it, but we also want to be present in the moment to what God wants to do right here. And we believe God has called us to work through the book of 1 Corinthians, so that's what we've been doing for the better part of a year. Uh, We've done chapters 1 through 10 already. Paul's been calling a divided church back to unity. And we get to unity, how? By releasing our comforts and our need to be right and our personal freedoms and our rights. And and we commit to being sexually faithful to God and one another, quietly loving our neighbor. All of this is what Paul has been talking about uh, toward unity, right? But now he shifts. We're in chapter 11. So if you could, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn there on your phones or with your paper Bibles. Paul shifts here. Now, chapters 11 through 14 is a whole new section all about how to worship well when we gather. Why do we gather like this? Why are you here? What are we doing? What should we be doing when we're here? You ever wonder that? Like, what should we be doing here? And when you come to the church gathering, what should be your mindset? Should it be like, I wonder if the songs and sermons are going to be good for me today? Or maybe, I hope there's some encouragement for me because I am exhausted. Or I wonder how my unique personality can contribute to what God is up to. Or I hope I just meet people. Like, I want to meet someone. Uh, I I feel lonely or whatever. Or maybe I want to be seen and accepted. Will I be understood here or will I just be misjudged? So what's our mindset? Maybe it's a little bit of all of that as we come, and that's okay. What should our mindset be when we gather as a church? Here's what Paul is doing in these chapters. He wants to like enliven your imagination. Could it be possible that God wants you to come expecting to be used powerfully in someone's life, whether it's through an act of service or through a word of prophetic knowledge to impact someone's life forever? This is where Paul is going. He wants to quicken your dreams to breathe life into your imagination. Why are you here? God has an answer for that. And it's so timely in these chapters because when it comes to the church gathering, Barna Research Group did an interesting study last June. Did you know since COVID began, one in three practicing Christians have stopped gathering with the church altogether, digitally, physically, altogether. 32% of all practicing Christians are just like, peace out. I'm good, I'll see you later. And Barna also found at the same time, those Christians who've stopped gathering reported more feelings of emotional burden, insecurity, and anxiety than those who kept gathering, which is interesting. So I want to say this right away. Uh, On behalf of Park Hills leaders, I want to speak directly to those of you who normally are online, those of you who tune in uh, maybe uh, on the live stream, and maybe you're finally coming here, and, and it's in person. I just met someone yesterday, uh, at the last gathering today who's been going all 
like full steam ahead online and they finally came, I just want to say, if that's you, well done. Uh, the leadership has set aside a lot of resources to make sure that you are honored and you are fully present and have an opportunity to be here. Um, you have been valued during this crazy year. Uh, and well done for taking all those opportunities and for showing up. And we're glad you're here in person. We don't live stream the 11 a.m. Um, but if that's been your normal way of like gathering, well done. Like you are valued and you're part of what God is doing here. And I also want to speak to those of you, a different group, uh, those of you who are actively working through trauma, like spiritual trauma, difficult church upbringing, Maybe you've been wounded by bad experiences in church, by leadership or whatever, and you still choose to show up. <laughs> like, like I, can't, I can't affirm you more. That's powerful. Um, you show up to community nights and prayer nights and you volunteer to serve. Huge shout out to you. Well done. So in this moment of incredible detachment, we are the unified body of Christ, and you're part of Jesus's kingdom breaking into a world in need of light. So the church, with her warts and all, is the way Jesus chooses to bring about his kingdom, and you're part of it, essential part. So this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's giving this message in chapters 11 through 14. And so here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to receive it humbly, and we're going to say, as a church, God, how do you want me to posture my heart and honor one another and commit to community and prayer as you talk about the gathering? How do you want my heart to be shaped? May it be humble. Can we do that, church, as we step into this new chapter in Paul's letter? That's how we're going to come to it. So, so we start this section in chapter 11, uh, verses 2 through 16, okay? <laughs> and this is classic Paul. Um, to kick off four chapters about how we gather, Paul just goes for the jugular and he talks about, light topic, sex difference and gender equality, right? Easy. Nothing controversial there. Classic Paul. And, and basically what Paul is saying is how in God's family, women and men are to value one another as equals in a time of inequality. This is where Paul goes. You got that? Just another light topic from Paul. But seriously, you guys, topics like these are why the leadership wanted to go through 1 Corinthians in the first place. We want to understand how the New Testament views women and the human body and our sexuality and our relationships because a community following Jesus is a community shaped by the scriptures Jesus gave us. And these scriptures talk all the way down to our bodies, our embodied experience as sexed beings, men and women. Uh, so I love how Sarah Yardley put this. She said, in every place where the scripture has felt harsh or oppressive, I'm probably reading it poorly. I think that's true. I'll say it again. In every place where the scripture has felt harsh or oppressive, I'm probably reading it poorly. I think that's spot on because the father's heart is not oppressive. He's after your flourishing. So as we come to this text from Paul on gender, I have a few prefatory comments. I think a little intro here is deserved and then we'll get through the text, all right? So prefatory comments. First of all, the verses we're about to read 
are notoriously difficult to interpret. Why? Well, because Paul's logic, his line of reasoning here, is really mysterious to us today. He is, first of all, he assumes some first century cultural cues that the reader's just supposed to automatically understand. For example, why women wore head coverings. We're supposed to know what that means for a woman to have a covering on her head when she walks into a space. And also, why shaving a woman's head is just as bad as taking off her head covering. Don't do that. Why? I don't know. That's cool. I don't know the culture. And then also, why a man with long hair is dishonored. <laughs> I don't know. And then finally, there's this really cryptic line in verse 10 where he just says, this is all because of the angels, by the way. And then he moves on. I'm like, what? What are we supposed to know what angels are thinking right now? What is going on? And so ju that's just a few of the unknowns. The reader's supposed to just know this automatically. But we don't. We're 2,000 years and 10,000 miles removed from Corinth. And so this is a heads up. As we go through this, to us, Paul's line of logic will be cloudy as we read this. But his main point will be clear. His main point is clear. Although how he gets to his point is foggy. And his point, here's his point, just to give it to you ahead of time so we can read this with clarity. It's two parts. Part one is this. Women and men are expected to pray and prophesy in the church together as equals. He expects this. And that equality of the genders, it honors God and it reflects the complete image of God to the world. So that's part one. He expects male, female, equality in prayer and prophecy, speaking and leading through speaking. And part two, as women and men do this, they are to be seen as distinct from one another. In other words, men worship as men, whatever that means in culture, and women worship as women, whatever that means in culture. And that sex distinction actually honors God and reflects his image to the world. So this is really significant, you guys to kick off four chapters on why we're doing this thing called Sunday gathering, why we gather. He's talking about it and he kicks it off by first, his first thing, his first agenda is to say that both genders are to be empowered as equals and honored as distinct sexes. This is what he says, equality with distinction. And so, you know, it's amazing to me how we can so easily emphasize one over the other, right? In other words, it's either distinction without equality, which is where we love talking about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Um, but at the end of the day, only one sex really gets to lead and only one sex really gets a voice at the table or paid fairly. Um, so that's distinction without equality. Or we go the other extreme and it's equality without distinction where we love talking about gender equality, but at the end of the day, no one really celebrates the differences between men and women and any discussion about masculinity or femininity is seen as toxic. But Paul's calling us to balance and he's like, no, it's both. Equality and distinction, both on display in the body of Christ. Now I got to pause right here because I'm fully aware we could do tons of nuancing and like endless footnoting on what gender is and gender fluidity and gender dysphoria and what the spectrum of gender looks like and so on. 
super important because that touches on the lived experience of so many precious human beings made in the image of God. And listen, Paul is not talking about that here. That's a very needed conversation. In this text, okay, Paul is looking back at the creation story, Adam and Eve, just like Jesus would look back at the creation story. And Paul is using that to make a broad observation for the church in our time. And that's this. When the church upholds gender equality while honoring gender distinction, that is when the full image of God is on display. This is Paul here. He's calling us to a balance. He's like, hey, family, remember who you are. Daughters and sons loved by a good father after you're flourishing. Okay, so we're going to honor that at the table today. Men and women together, eating and drinking of Jesus. Okay, so that's the framework for the passage, okay? So now we're going to dive in. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Are you ready? There's a wild one. Paul begins, verse 2. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Okay, so right away, first thing, this passage is in the context of praise for you. This is, whatever Paul's about to say, he's like, this is a good thing. I'm going to affirm you guys in this. It's different than 17 verses later where he says, now let's talk about communion. And in this matter, I have no praise for you because you are uh, oppressing the poor and all the rich people are coming to communion early and drinking the wine and eating ahead of time. You're leaving the oppressed out. I have no praise for you in that. But in this, when it comes to the genders, he's like, I have praise for you. This is good news, what I'm about to give you. And, and, And so he says, verse three, here it is. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. How many of you did I just lose with that verse? So before any of you tune out, there's a huge conversation around that one sentence, okay? Tons of debate all around this concept of headship. What does it mean to be the head? What does it mean to say God is Christ's head, man, Christ is man's head, and then man is woman's head? What does that mean? It's obviously not talking about a literal human head, body part. It's a metaphor for something, but what? So when there's an important term in the Bible, and we're confused about the definition, what do you do? One of the things you do is you go check out how that Greek word was used in other Greek documents at the time. But the problem is metaphorical uses of this word head were extremely rare at that time. In the vast majority of all the literature, the word head literally means like your cabeza, like your human body part in all the Greek. Uh, except once in a great while, there are rare moments where heads in Greek is a metaphor for sources, like river heads, like tributaries that feed into larger rivers. Think life support, nourishing supply. So if we read head as nourishing supply, then Paul's making a point from Genesis. The creation story, right? Right? Where in Genesis, 
Man's source of supply was Christ as creator. Woman's source of supply in the creation story was man because she came out of man's side in the story. And Christ's source of supply is the Father, since Christ came from the Father. And so with that understanding, head and headship is way less about hierarchy and more about nurturing source. Think life support. So this tends to be the direction I personally lean in my understanding of the word head here. Um, and because of how it fits with the rest of 1 Corinthians 11. However, listen, so important to say this, church. Huge moment of like unity right now. There's tons of good and godly people who disagree on this. And there are many who say, no, 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 head does mean leader because the leader of man is Christ. Christ leads humans. And the leader of Christ is the father. He said, I do nothing except what my father tells me. Therefore, the leader of the wife is her husband. And, and, and I want to say very clearly, that is an absolutely legitimate view held by godly people in the body of Christ. Because the fact is, in the scriptures, occasionally, head does refer to a leader figure. Look at the end of Ephesians 1. The entire universe takes its command from Christ, the head, in that verse. But then, the, but listen, <laughs> then, then the question becomes, okay, what does leader mean? in the Bible. What's a leader? If you think biblical leadership means boss or commander or something, then you're reading the wrong Bible. Okay. In the way of Jesus, leadership is the opposite of a power abuser. Kingdom leadership means an example, unifier, someone who goes out of their way at their own expense to equip others, and the person who takes initiative to die. That's a leader. So if you take the leader view, you still have to lean into the cross. So some think head means life supply. Others read head as authority or leader. And there's a bunch of other views out there. So, so why am I doing all this? Suffice it to say, this debate will not be resolved anytime soon, you guys. This is one of those things I'm really looking forward to asking Jesus when he comes back. Like, what does it mean that you are our head and therefore like sexual males are the head of sexual females? Like, what does that even, Jesus, help us? Um, so it would be a mistake to just imagine this debate as settled. It would be worse to pick the definition of headship that fits what you already think about men and women. Whether it's a progressive or feminist idea or a complementarian or conservative idea about gender, you can't just pick the definition of a Bible word that serves the ideology you already have. As followers of Jesus, we don't let our hearts shape the text. We let the text shape our hearts. Uh, believing that God is good. Remember, that God is not oppressive. That he is out for your flourishing. Tertullian, church father, he says this about head in, in the scriptures. He says, to the extent that male headship is based on Christ's headship, quote, what crown has he who is the head? It was made from thorns and thistles. I love that passage. So whatever privilege, if any, comes from being the head, it is much more a responsibility to suffer. So uh, all, all that to say, we cannot be sure what head means in verse three. So actually, it would be a mistake to hang all our ideas about gender and what men and women should be doing on one debated word. It's a mistake. So here's what we can know. Are you ready? 
Here's what we can know. We're going to see in the next verses that Paul expects both men and women to lead as equals, okay? Um, And to respect the sex difference between the two. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 and 5, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, difference, dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. (laughs) I love that. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head, okay? So all the cultural things, you know, let's cut through the cultural things to the nut of meaning here, right in the kernel. What, what is Paul saying? First thing to notice, both men and women are expected to pray and prophesy. He expects both men and women to pray and prophesy, like spoken leadership, And we think from 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, when Paul uses those two categories of prayer and prophecy, he's he's using that as a catch-all for ministry and lead through spoken word, through prayer to God and spoken word to humans in the church gathering. (laughs) So it's so important we don't blow by this. Paul speaks to women and men as co-equals in the gathered church. In the gathered church. For Paul, both sexes are expected to lead in the gatherings. It's the first thing to notice here. And here's the second thing to notice. There's obviously layers of cultural weirdness to us, like shaving heads is the same as covering or whatever. But please understand, please understand what Paul is doing here is incredibly liberating for women, because by instructing women and men to both distinguish and dignify one another, he's affirming the full dignity of women in a time when they were very much second class to men. You might be like, right this moment, you're like, okay, Evan, I don't buy it. Like, am I supposed to believe women being told to cover their heads is liberating? Yes, like in that culture, this was liberating. According to historians, a woman's uncovered hair in ancient Corinth was a sign of sexual availability and even pagan prostitution and possibly even a less dignified class. So some women were viewed as not deserving to cover their heads. And so most likely Paul's saying, no, 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 no. When you gather as the new family of Jesus, all women are free to clothe themselves in dignity and honor, not just the classy women, not just the Corinthian upper-class women. All women will be dignified in this house. That's what Paul is saying. So, it's 2021, right? Like 25 years ago, 1996 or whatever, um, it would have been harder to preach this message maybe back then, but now in the wake of the Me Too movement, And in light of all the sex scandals and abuse of women by powerful men and the reparations being made in media, all of that, our cultural moment is ripe for what the gospel has to say to women right now. The gospel lifts up women alongside men as co-equal partners in the kingdom. At the same time, the gospel celebrates the distinction between male and female. And it says, through that equality with distinction, God is glorified and men and women are honored. 
So he continues this in verse 7. Look at verse 7 through 10. He says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man didn't come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Talking about the creation story again. Verse 10, it is for this reason, okay, here's, I don't know how the A connects to B and says C, but verse 10 says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Because of the angels, by the way, he says. A lot of unknowns there. Uh, but again, what do we know? Paul's like, in the house of Jesus, other people should not, cannot dictate which women get to be dignified. No, each woman ought to have authority over her own being, her own head. Liberating. Again, in Paul's day, head coverings are somehow connected to honor and shame. Dignity or disgrace somehow is wrapped up in this. And he's like, no, no, as, as men and women worshiping together, women have the right to be seen as dignified just like men do. So this is a passage about presenting yourself. This is a passage about what is culturally appropriate. This is a passage about clothing, which means this is also about modesty. So Paul says what he's getting at, dressing appropriately for your culture and modestly in your culture is something women and men are free to do. And when you do, it is a way of exercising dignity over your own body and freeing yourself to be dignified and reflect the image of God to the world. Again, think of where we're at culturally. 2021, like the, the wake of the Me Too movement is still swirling all over America right now. Here's the gift of the Me Too movement. So many things and awakenings in it. And one of them, beautiful, our culture is making a healthy shift away from everything being the woman's fault. We're moving away from that. We're moving away from, oh, it's probably the woman, right? I mean, growing up in the 80s and 90s, how many of you are like over 30? You remember purity culture? Yeah, yeah. Growing, like in the evangelical purity culture, uh, the big idea was like, hey, ladies, you better cover up because no skirts above the knees or spaghetti straps because you got to protect your Christian brothers from you was the idea. And tragically, the message often devolved and became less about the beauty and freedom that comes through dignity and, it, and instead, it, it devolved into, well, male lust is really a female problem because boys will be boys, so girls just better be careful or else you become the danger. And thankfully, our culture is shifting hard away from that. But culture has a way of overcorrecting its own problems. And so the pendulum is swinging hard the other way, if I may say. And it's like, now it's like the other side. It's like, well, I should be able to wear what ever I want to put, get your laws off my body. And if someone objectifies me, it's their dirty problem. And there's truth in that, for sure. We need to control our minds, but we need to also let Paul bring us back to balance. And what Paul's trying to tell us here, the conversation around modesty needs to be separated from the conversation around men needing to control themselves. They both are important, separate conversations that obviously have some overlap, 
But when we let the scripture speak separately to both, modesty here, yes, okay, okay, what Paul says about modesty, and objectification. When we let the scripture speak to both, that's when we strike the balance that Paul is going for. And then we get the tools to reflect the male-female image of God into a world that is just hyper-sexualized and all over the map. So when we're prepping for this teaching. We do it as a team, men and women at the table every week, prepping the teachings together. Uh, my wife made the comment. She's like, I'm glad we're in a text about clothing and dignity and modesty in the dead of winter. <laughs> um, although it is a hot day, so, um, but summer in San Diego something, is something else. But since it's winter, and I don't think there's anyone here in like a bikini or a Speedo, so no one feels judged. Um, and we can all hear we can all hear the honoring, honoring words of Paul. On one hand, he's like, hey, hey men and ladies, there may be someone in church who wears clothing that catches your eye, so check yourself. It is your job to steward your mind and not objectify your sister or brother. That's one hand, important. And then on the other hand, at the same time, Paul's like, hey ladies, and men, Paul's making a point here specifically about clothing and appropriateness. When you embody being a daughter or son in presenting yourself with dignity through dress, you're actually gaining control and authority and honor over your own body in a way that no one can take away from you. Paul's wanting us to have both those conversations. As a church, this is his first priority at the top of four chapters about what we do here. So in our hypersexualized culture, when the church upholds the dignity of both sexes, the image of God gets put on display. Women and men leading and prophesying together as equals, women and men honoring each other sexually as distinct reflections of God's image. Both. That's what this text is about. So verse 11, this is why he says this. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Okay, those verses right there are a, the turning point in this text. And also these verses are why I personally lean toward head as life support or nourishing supply rather than primarily leader. Because Paul does this like judo move. He like does this switcheroo on the Genesis story. And he says, remember creation, we've been talking about Adam and Eve, woman coming out of the side, the rib or whatever. You remember that story? Yes, woman came from man, but he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, we recognize man is born of woman. So really it goes both ways in this house. You, you, you women came from men and you men all came from women. So the whole argument that men are to support and bring out the best in women, it goes the other way. And, and women are to support and bring out the best in men. And so Paul, Paul's like, this is how brothers and sisters are supposed to relate. In the Lord. That, that phrase, in the Lord, changes everything. It means whatever ideas about gender roles and biblical whatevers you have, whatever definition of head, authority, equality, in the Lord, he's saying men need women, women need men, 
Men learn and are led by women. Women learn and are led by men. And both submit equally to God. This is the baseline truth of the chapter. And so um, I just want to speak to something. One of the greatest challenges of church culture, evangelicalism, has been the absence of both men and women in the same rooms, often. The absence of men and women together at the table, prayerfully shaping the vision of communities of the spirit. And in an era of strong male-led churches, nothing wrong with male-led churches, nothing wrong with men leading, but in an era of a lot of strong male-led churches, women simply haven't been part of the conversations, let alone part of the vision and leadership of God's people as spiritual mothers alongside spiritual fathers. Listen, I want to say this clearly. According to 1 Corinthians 11, I believe Paul would not stand for that kind of division. In Paul's words, woman is not independent of man, and nor is man independent of woman. From the beginning of Park Hill Church, women and men have been together at the table. Our first prayer meeting in 2016, praying in Portland for the church that would be born in San Diego, we had spiritual fathers and mothers together in the room. And two of those couples, praying for you, four years ago, two of those couples were the Wickhams and the Persleys, Evan, Sandy, Madalia. And uh, those two couples are now functioning elders in authority over this church and in the responsible parties to die for this church. And, and, uh, and Matthew and Elodie Ruffet added to the table. And listen, we never meet as elders or make decisions unless all six of us are fully present. So, so when I open up the teachings here by saying, you know, I say, you know, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church. It's actually true because we're both leading and we both have the joy. It's a joy for both of us to do it. We believe this is Paul's heart. This is the heart of God for, the, for his family. And, and it's men and women empowered as equals and honored as distinct sexual beings. Okay, so, and, and then Paul signs off. I love, his, I love his sign off in verse 16. He says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. <laughs> like, he's like, if, if we're gonna start a fight about these things, we will not have that. Um, we have no such practice. There he is bringing it back to unity. We can't let debates about head coverings or clothing or what is or isn't modest, or what exactly headship means, we can't let those debates divide the body of Christ. We have no such practice, he says. I love what my friend Tim Chaddock uh, said, our new identity does not destroy our distinctions, but our divisions. So in love, we choose to go out of our way to release our freedom to wear whatever we want or eat and drink whatever we want, our civic freedoms, our freedom not to wear a mask, whatever it might be, we choose to let go of being right for the sake of love. That is our practice. We have no other practice in, in, as God's family in San Diego. Okay. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the teaching. 
But I don't know about you, after that, there's like these huge ideas that go so deep down into our embodied experience as sexual beings. Like, what do we do with this? Like, what does this mean for me as a woman or a man in the new family of Jesus? What do we do with this? And so as as leaders, we decided to end on two notes. One is an invitation and one is an apology. And here's the invitation. Our leadership believes that the spirit is calling both women and men to flourish in their unique gifts in this church. Like who has God wired you to be? And what are the gifts that align with your dreams and God's character? And how would those things burst onto the Park Hill scene? Like, let's start talking about that in community and in dialogue with elders. Send an email for prayer, whatever it looks like. Invite the Holy Spirit into this moment. Say, Holy Spirit, come. We're we're about to sing. Holy Spirit, come. Give me dreams. Give me dreams. I've had good desires for five years that maybe I've shelved because maybe someone spoke something over me, maybe related to my gender that I've just silenced or whatever. Resurrect that dream. Fulfill the good desires of your daughter and son. So you, all of you, are invited to walk in the gift of 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, where Paul expects He just expects women to be praying and prophesying with men. As he's encouraging distinction, he's assuming it's happening. This is our expectation for you as leaders. So invite the spirit to like breathe life onto dead dreams. Not for your own agenda or aggrandizement, but for the building up of the church until Christ comes again. That's the invitation. Here's what I wanna say next. Um, as a leader and as, as a male leader of this church, in unity with the leaders, we extend an apology. I apologize to anyone who has been oppressed or sidelined over the years because of your gender. Whatever experiences you've had, whatever words spoken over you, well-meaning leaders, like me, including me, can be dead wrong. So with tons of, as much humility as I, know how to, as I know how to muster in this moment, I want to apologize. First off, if we specifically, Park Hill leaders, have ever made you feel excluded or less than because you are a woman, uh, my goodness, how, how, how can we take 100% ownership of that? In the name of Jesus, I want to apologize and own that and say that is not the heart of the father of his daughters and sons. That's not God's heart. And also, if you have a history of wounding or you're carrying a hurt from a past experience where the, maybe the Bible was used, misused to silence you or disqualify you or whatever else, as a, as a man who leads church, I want to apologize to you and let you know that you are absolutely welcome safe to process here and to process that pain and ultimately find healing in community. It's hard. Uh, The only real lasting way to find healing from relational wounds is through relationship, which is the hardest place to go. But let us know. 
anything we can do to clear the pathway for you to process through brave community and through prayer. We're going to actually, first time since COVID, we're going to actually have people up here who uh, will pray for you in person by name. We've been slow on that just to make sure that we are honoring to everyone. But we feel today is the day God wants us to be able to uh, make human beings (laughs) available to you to hear your name and pray God's love over your life and his empowering spirit to give you a fresh vision for his plan. So God forbid, maybe you've been oppressed uh, in like a personal relationship in a way that has left you deeply wounded. Um, And the Bible was mixed in in that and all of that. Like the Holy Spirit has healing for you here. There it is. The invitation Invite the spirit to breathe on your dreams and invite him to enfold your wounds. Uh, And that will take time. I realize, you know, I I said this to the last, you guys can come up. Oh, you're up. Um, I said this to the last gathering. I like not only masks as a pastor, this is so hard because we, we pastors really feed off like nonverbal facial cues when we can like, and so there's none of that for the first half of your face. (laughs) And then you have sunglasses, a lot of you, so it's okay. Keep them on. I would, but uh, I don't know. I can't read you. So um, there are things happening here after a sermon like that, that we cannot see only God's God can really see. And we, we want to create the kind of space that is needed and healthy and holy and set apart and devoted to your healing Um, but we need to do that like in communication with you when you're ready. And, and so maybe that's an email on Tuesday morning after 48 hours of processing, or maybe it's coming for prayer right now. Either way, we're here as long as you are. We're in this city for decades and we love you. And, uh, we're going to invite the spirit to come now and breathe on our dreams and hold on to our wounds. Heavenly father, Thank you that you are good and you're out for our flourishing and that often involves repentance and turning and seeing how good you really are. And other times it involves trust, believing that you are the good God you say you are. So for this song, we believe. Help our unbelief. We believe you, God. Help our unbelief. Empower your daughters to dream dreams and your young men to prophesy. Empower your daughters to speak boldly and your young men to pray prayers. So that the fullness of the image of God would be seen in San Diego until Christ comes again. So church, up here, maybe Matt and Lee, I don't know, but uh, I'll be over here. And whoever's up here, um, however you feel comfortable coming and saying, hey, pray for me in this way. We're here for you. And then after this song, Ariel, she's going to lead us in communion. And and we're just going to be here as long as you are. Holy Spirit, come.